What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, I want to start by, uh, by by bringing everybody's mind back to um, oh, a famous quote from Plato. Uh, okay. This is from Plato's Republic, book, book two. Uh, and this is uh, particular to the, uh, the Joet uh, translation. Uh, quote, Then I said, let us begin and create in idea a state. And yet the true creator is necessity, who is the mother of our invention. And then um, Joet uh, also applied a more direct translation, which may be, quote, our need will be the real creator. Oh, so this is the origin of that phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. Exactly. Uh, which it sometimes is, but as we've discussed plenty of times on the show before, there are a lot of mothers of invention, and many of them are not quite necessity. Yeah, a lot of the shows we discuss on the show are devices and concepts that attempt to solve basic problems in the lives of the humans that created them. I think that is a very common thing to encounter. Uh, and uh, But the same cannot be said for today's invention. No. <laughs> Not exactly, because today we're discussing humanity's centuries-spanning quest to create a robot that eats and poops. <laughs> and I would say it's not so much as a need uh, as it is a want, you know? Uh-huh. Um, but it is interesting when you start breaking it down, like why, if we didn't need if there wasn't a, d- a definite need say in the ancient world or uh, or even in recent centuries to have a robot that could eat a sandwich and then produce that sandwich to poop then why did we seemingly want it and and i and i and i do say that you know we did seemingly want it individuals worked at this problem to varying degrees uh, either you know dreaming it up uh, creating uh, machines that at least produce the uh, you know the the effects of this process, and then later on, even you know in recent years, have reached the point where we actually have machines capable of carrying this out, which we'll get to towards the end of the episode. Yeah, but one thing to think about is that 
a, a machine that poops, say a pooping robot, is not just something that's for laughs. It actually does play, a, say, an intellectually serious role in history and it engages with ideas that people have been pushing back and forth on for hundreds of years. And I'd say chiefly one of those ideas is the question of what makes something alive. Right. And we'll revisit that throughout the episode. Yeah, because you know ultimately it comes down to this, this very old – old uh, quest, you know, this very old question. Can the inventor in, uh, in their, with their secular uh, ingenuity, can they rival the work of the gods? Can they create a machine that moves like a human being, that thinks like a human being, or even eats and poops like a human being? And this is there in some of the older uh, myths about craftspeople and inventors, like, the, you know, the myth of Daedalus. One of the stories told about Daedalus, I think this also appears in a, in a dialogue written by Plato, mm-hmm. is the idea that Daedalus created these statues and because he was such a good craftsman and because they were so like lifelike, they came to life. There is embedded in that almost like an idea that, you know, uh, be careful because if you make a, a representation of a living form that's close enough to the real thing, it will actually just spontaneously come alive and walk out of your workshop. Well, right. And I mean, in, in a non-literal way, like that, that is true. Like uh, the artificiality of the, the things we create and the likeness of human beings can be, can be very powerful, continues to be even more powerful given our abilities with, uh, you know, say digital media. We can create something that seems human. And then if we uh, believe in it enough, it um, almost makes it real. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so it's one thing to create a work of art. I mean, I think that's ultimately, even though Daedalus is in some ways considered to be like an inventor with the the wings and stuff, uh, the statues that he created, I think, are generally thought of as works of art, right? The the idea was that they were so artistically uh, adept, that they were so realistic in their depiction of the human form, there was danger of them coming alive and walking away. But there are also myths of actual like machines that that mimic human or lifelike forms in some way. Yeah, uh, ultimately way too many for us to 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 share on the show today, but just a, a few examples that that come to mind. Uh, there's of course uh, Albertus Magnus, um you know who lived uh, 1193 through 1280. Um who was uh, also known as uh, Doctor uh, Universalis and Doctor uh, Expertus, uh, and, and later he was made a saint. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, he was said to have an android, to have this uh, again, this thing that you know details are kind of vague, but it sounds like something in the likeness of, of a human that had some sort of mechanism to its movement that mm-hmm. that allowed it to lean into this lifelike nature. You know, I, I, I think we can safely dismiss the idea that he had a walking, talking robot <laughs> in, his, uh, in his laboratory or the, that was created via technology or magic because there are a lot mm-hmm. of stories about uh, Magnus. Uh, but I would say it's not impossible that some of these more ancient figures or even medieval figures had uh, had some kind of automata that had limited functionality and that they might have had internal gears and clockwork mechanisms that by, you know, turning a crank or by operating bellows or somehow putting energy into the system would allow it to enact movements through the, you know, the robotic articulation kind of things yeah. that could be somewhat lifelike, probably wouldn't be walking around talking, but it might you know, you might have an automaton in the ancient world that has gears inside that allow it to move its arms and stuff. Right. Well, we did a whole episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Talos, the yeah. um, the mythical um, 
uh, um, automaton that would stalk the shores and throw uh, boulders at robots. Said to be I created mean, I mean, by Hephaestus. Shows, yeah, created by Hephaestus that would throw boulders at ships. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly this creature never – this thing never walked the earth. But you can imagine where it might – it was either inspired by some of the manufacturing uh, uh, techniques that were employed to create similar statues mm-hmm. or it was based in some way on um, you know mild automatons that were demonstrated by uh, proficient individuals. And there were some strikingly uh, proficient machines in the ancient world. I mean we, we can't lose sight of that. Like uh, the Antikythera mechanism yeah. is an astronomical calculus. Later, it's essentially a an analog computer that is made by different size gears that fit together. That was from you know I think it was the second or third century BCE or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, that was discovered in a shipwreck in the Mediterranean. This was you know a, a really complex clockwork mechanism that calculated the positions of objects in the sky. And if the ancients could build stuff like that, it's not at all inconceivable that they could build basic automata in human-like forms that could you know move their body parts and stuff. Uh, a couple of other examples of, of older tales of, uh, of such creations. Uh, King Solomon is uh, said in some accounts to have had, had uh, a throne with mechanical animals on it. Oh, is that where the Marilyn Manson title comes from? What, Dope Throne? No, mecha- Dope Throne? That's Electric, oh, that's wizard, electric dude. wizard, dude. Get it straight. <laughs> no, Mechanical Animals. Isn't that a... Oh, oh yeah, I guess it is. Sorry. I'm getting my uh, my albums confused there. <laughs> um, in, in either case, I don't think either um, uh, band actually had a, had a, had a throne um, on par with King Solomon's. <laughs> uh, there's another... There's actually um, uh, an individual uh, by the name of uh, Zhou Mu Wang... Uh, 5th century Zhao dynasty um, uh, ruler who is said to have had a, a mechanical engineer. And uh, I've also read similar uh, stories of uh, Lu Ban uh, from the same time period. Uh, Lu Ban, of course, would also also deified as a, a, you know, a god of, uh, of engineering, carpentry, etc. Uh, but in a lot of these, especially these older accounts, you know, myth mingles with history. Um, a great deal becomes obviously exaggerated. Um, you know, uh, Albertus Magnus, for all his interests, was not an actual magician. And it seems a, an essential truth that throughout human history, engineers, inventors, artists, and technicians have experimented with automata. Uh, you know, we're driven to reproduce images of the human form, and then we take it a step beyond and attempt to bring them to life. And this is, uh, is of course, part and parcel to, to one of humanity's oldest storytelling mediums, puppetry. Oh, yeah. I mean, I hadn't thought about it like that, but... A puppet, in a way, is an extremely crude automaton. It is a figure Mm -hmm. that is powered by some kind of external force applied at remove through the strings or whatever or through wires. Or even just directly with the human hands. Uh Uh, You know, sometimes there's not even this removal, but – but we're bringing life to the the inanimate and making the inanimate animate. Yeah. Uh, And and this goes back, you know, at least 4,000 years through human history. But it's impossible really to say when – puppetry really began because ultimately any piece of wood or stone transformed into the likeness of a human or an animal could be quote-unquote brought to life through uh, minor or or even crude puppetry. Yeah, and I guess in some ways it's like the advancement of the – of the automaton, how advanced we think it is and how we react to it is based on how well hidden the deliveries of the power operations of its body parts are, right? Mm -hmm. Like how well hidden the mechanisms are and how much it just looks like it operates on its own force from the inside. Right. Uh, But but, uh, yes and no though, right? Because um, um, as far as puppetry is concerned, 
uh, puppetry can still be very convincing when you have very visible puppeteers. I mean, it's yeah. still a style that's employed uh, today, and you can still, um, you know, part of it is the suspension of disbelief, but the, the, puppetry, the puppet, puppet can still become real. Uh, but yeah, to whatever degree you hide that, to whatever degree then it becomes uh, seemingly or even purely mechanical uh, with the, the human standing off to the side, uh, you know, that can only, uh, you know, enhance the effect. But, but just in, in terms of, of picking up a, a likeness of a being or a creature and then moving it and making it seem like it's alive, I mean, you can, you can look at some of the, the, the oldest uh, evidence uh, we have of uh, such likenesses, such as the, the Venus of Whole Fells uh, from what four, between 40,000 and 35,000 years ago. Oh, there's evidence that this was a puppet? Well, no, there's no evidence uh, that I've seen that it was a puppet. But uh-huh. it's, it's like if you have a, something like this or you have something like uh, – the likeness of the Lion Man that we discussed. The Lowen Mensch, yeah. The Mensch from Stuff to Blow Your Mind. It, it's, it's one it, – it, it really makes me think to imagine people picking this up and brandishing it for the first time and, you know, really and, – and, and this combination of forms making their minds work and summoning uh, new ideas about what's, what's possible and how, and how it relates to the, the human condition. But then – all one has to do then is to, to move the, the, the lion man around a little bit. Well, yeah. And it comes to life on some level. And then how does that change the message? Yeah, yeah. So you can think about the, the different um, levels of animation and articulation within representational art throughout history. So first you might have had cave paintings that are fixed on a wall and don't move. Mm-hmm. And then you might have had something like the Venus or like the the, uh, the Lohenmensch, which is a, a standalone figurine that you could – it's stiff and rigid on its own. But you can move it around with your hand like kids do with their toys. You know, they right. act out little scenes. And then beyond that, you can have articulated figurines with independently moving body parts. Of course, that's like the next step. And then the thing beyond that, of course, would be to make those body parts move at a distance or with some kind of hidden power without you having to pose them with your fingers. Absolutely. So uh, we could go on for quite some time talking about like, the history of, of creating these likenesses and to, to varying degrees that we bring them to life, sometimes with things that don't even physically interact with them uh, in a traditional sense, such as uh, lighting effects, mm-hmm. uh, the effects of, of candle or firelight on, uh, on statues and, and whatnot. But ultimately, we want to fast forward a bit. We want to go all the way up into the 18th century, 18th century Europe. We want to talk about the work of Jacques de Vaucassin. Yes, I think we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can dive further in. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part time or full time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello. 
From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. And, uh, you know, I I hope you stuck with us because now we're going to get into uh, the story of the defecating duck. Right. So this is the work of Jacques de Vaucasson, who was a French uh, automaton maker who lived 1709 to 1782. And Robert, we both read an excellent essay about uh, Vaucasson and some some of his contemporaries called The Defecating Duck or The Ambiguous Origins of Artificial Life. And this was published in Critical Inquiry in 2003, written by Jessica Riskin, who is a professor of history at Stanford. And she's written extensively about the historical scientific debate about what makes something alive, including in a book called The Restless Clock, which I was uh, reading about and reading some passages from, which is University of Chicago Press 2016. But uh, for Riskin, Vaucasson is a – so as a maker of automata, he plays an important role in the history of this debate about what it is that makes living things special, what makes something alive. And this historical conflict uh, has been between people who on one side thought living things were sort of passive machines that were designed to work a certain way and could be understood by their movements pretty much entirely except for the fact that they had been – you know, they might have like a divine spark or an animating life essence. Uh, and th- this uh, t- this point of view is typified by Descartes, right, who mm-hmm. famously thought that animals were machines. Yeah, and if you're approaching everything from a very biomechanical standpoint like this, then uh, it seems completely possible to reverse engineer uh, the animal. Yeah, exactly. And then on the other hand, you've got people like Leibniz who uh, thought that animals were what Leibniz called organisms. The uh, you know th- that was a word of his coinage, meaning self-organizing, self-changing machines. So we might still think of them in terms of machinery, but having all of these these self-actualizing potentials and irreducible parts. 
And so the uh, one interesting thing that Riskin points out is that the idea of living things as clockwork machines was actually considered relatively acceptable theologically at the time in, say, you know, uh, 18th century Christian Europe. It sort of fit with the idea somewhat in vogue at the time of God as an ultimate watchmaker who fashioned an exquisite clockwork universe by ingenious design and set it going. Uh, yeah, once again, using like technology being the metaphor we use to then reinterpret our, our myths and our legends and our religions. Yeah. But uh, Jacques de Vaucasson, so he's he's in this world, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Vaucasson lived uh, in a time of clockwork wonders and rapidly advancing technology. Mm -hmm. uh, he was uh, the 10th son of a glove maker. And so uh, you know, as one might expect, he grew up poor. But, but Around a, a lot of gloves. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of gloves. And he's 10th yeah, in line to, you know, to, to work the shop. Uh, but he dreamt of becoming a clockmaker, and he was fortunate enough to study under the Jesuits and coupled his clockwork ambitions with these new mysteries that came into his life, the mysteries of religion and this evolving understanding of health and human anatomy that is inevitably based in a, this kind of bi biomechanical vision of what life is. Okay, so he's got some knowledge of like clockwork and gears and how, you know, all these different little parts can fit together to move things at a distance and, mm -hmm. and channel power in different directions. Right, so he ends up creating a number of different... Uh, uh, automata, and uh, and he, he comes to excel in the creation of what were known at the time as philosophical toys. Mm -hmm. These were amusements, you know, mechanical clockwork amusements. They were also supposed to make you think. Like the Billy Big Mouth Bass. Oh, well, know? It sings, but it also makes you think. Well, no, mm, like, what if a fish could sing? I'm not sure what a really good example. I guess this would— Should he take me to the river? <laughs> I don't even know if we have— purely philosophical toys anymore. Uh, perhaps some huh. of our toy collectors out there listening can, can chime in. But, I mean, the idea is that this would be a device that was brought out and demonstrated. Uh, you, you would even pay to see it. You know, you would go to see this, this philosophical toy in action, and you would marvel at what seemed was possible with the technology. And then, uh, ideally, this would lead to a great deal of uh, thought and introspection on what it is telling you about the natural world, about the human condition, etc. Uh, really, in a way, it's like in a pre-motion picture age, uh, you know, what, what kind of, uh, of mechanical object could convey all of the feelings you end up feeling from, say, watching Blade Runner? I, I do think there are some things kind of like philosophical toys today. Uh, I think of machines, I can't remember where I saw this, but, there, you know, there's like the the type of toy that is a an electronic machine that has an it's a box with an open button and a close button mm -hmm. and if you press the open button it opens and a little hand comes out of the box and presses the close button and goes oh, back yeah, inside yeah. and it closes up which is kind of a philosophical toy it's I like so. it's amusing yeah. for a moment but it also maybe asks you maybe it causes you to ask questions about like what what is the role of a machine does this act, does this machine do something yeah, and there are also various, like certainly not uh, mechanical objects, but various like puzzle box scenarios that, mm -hmm. that cause one to think. I don't know what the name for this is, but the little, like the little folding boxes that just keep folding back. Um, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, generally, you'll, you'll find them with, with images on the sides of them, and you kind of open them up, and then you open them up a second way. And I mean, it all makes sense. For, you can One could certainly describe it and plan it out, uh, uh, you know, geometrically, but... Um, 
I, 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 when I encounter him, I'm still like caught up in the illusion of the thing. Like it seems like there's some sort of weird infinity going on with it. I don't think I'm familiar with what you're talking about. I got to have huh. one of these. I'll have to bring one in. Okay. Uh, like I say, maybe there's a, there's a more descriptive term for them, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, but yeah, basically just little gadgets where it's not immediately clear exactly how it's functioning. I mean, to a certain extent, a Rubik's Cube is this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you don't know sort of the, the, the secret of the Rubik's Cube and you uh, encounter somebody who can quickly solve one and you cannot, it's, it's astounding. Like, how it's is magic, it even working? Yeah. How, how are these things even moving around? Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, it, and, of course, this, uh, to, to come back around to um, you know, the idea of puzzle boxes, I mean, the, uh, I'm reminded, of course, of the lament for reconfiguration of the Hellraiser <laughs> right. movies. It's which a philosophical is, toy. <laughs> well, it, it, it believe in the lore of the Hellraiser movies, it emerges from this same time period, the same, uh-huh. this time period of clockwork wonders. Yeah, the Marchand configuration or whatever. Or, no, the lament configuration. The lament. It's mm-hmm. the Marchand box? Is that whatever it is. Yeah, but it, it does ask you questions. It asks you uh, the question, uh, really, uh, what is the difference between pleasure and pain? Are, you know, <laughs> pleasure and pain indivisible? <laughs> So, uh, but to bring things back to the real world here. Um, uh, to focus on. To focus on. Uh, he built a pair of android waiters that served dinner and cleared a table. He also created a mechanical flute player that could play, four, uh, play 12 different melodies. And that's more impressive than it seems because this, uh, the flute player that he built, Oriskin writes about this, it actually played the flute. I mean, like it blew into the flute mm-hmm. and did the finger motions on, on a real flute. So th- that's, I don't know, more impressive than just like a music box that happens to be holding a flute. It was a machine that actually blows in and, and plays the instrument. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, this is also a page from the history of self-playing instruments, yeah. uh, which we alluded to a little bit in our episode on the saxophone, uh, but I think is the sort of thing we could easily do a whole episode on in the future. Instruments that play themselves or uh, – robots that play the instrument. What's the, the difference between the two, ultimately? Yeah, that's a good point. But so this gets us up to the 1730s with uh, Vaucasson, in which he, he achieves his true masterpiece, which is what? Uh, the pooping duck, of course. The pooping duck, le canard de gérateur. <laughs> As uh, Gabby Wood writes in Living Dolls, A Magical History of the Quest for Mechanical Life, uh, this was a gold-plated copper duck that could quack, drink, raise up on its legs, and most famously of all, uh, it would eat grain and then it would poop. Yes. So you would like get a piece of corn in your hand mm-hmm. and feed it to the duck and it would take it in its mouth. And then there would be a pause for a moment and then the duck would poop something that looks convincingly like real duck poop. Right. And uh, the way it was related to everyone is that the grain was passing through tubes to a chemical-filled stomach and then through the duck's bowels, its anus, and uh, mechanical sphincter. Um, however, according to, to Reskin, the duck didn't actually convert food into poop. No. Sad to say. What it did was it just collected the grain in one tube and pushed out real excrement from a different one. So it ultimately, it's just it's another illusion. It's a mechanical trick. It's, uh, it has far more in common with the Roman puppet god Glycon than it does with <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 the mythical wonders of Daedalus. That's right. So it was a trick. It wasn't actually performing biological digestion of foodstuffs and, and excreting. But I don't think that means that this historical object is uninteresting. And or it, that it's completely a fraud. I mean, right. it's – uh, again, it was presented as entertainment. It's presented as a philosophical toy. So uh, 
part of it is like what does the machine appear to do and what does that make you think about the actual biological act. Exactly. Yeah. Riskin talks about how it raises these questions. We'll get back to that in a minute. But I, I thought it was interesting, the stuff you came up with about why uh, why Vaucasson might have been drawn to this project of a duck that poops. Yeah. This was brought up by, by Gabby Wood um, about how, you know, it suggests, you know, looking at why a man of uh, – of of of, the, of his genius of Vascon's genius was so enthralled by a mechanical duck that could defecate. Right. Uh, you know, in addition to uh, proving both popular and lucrative, so it apparently ended up scoring him a, a gig designing looms for the King of France. It did that, but also it's just sold it like it was it was gangbusters. Yeah, like, it made money. This was people were lining up to see the duck the duck poop. People would pay to get in to see the display was the the pooping duck in the middle, and it had a flute player on one side and. <laughs> A, uh, the the automatic flute player, you know, the mm-hmm. automata, uh, and another type of instrument player on the other side. So you got two automatic instrument players on either side, and the duck pooping in the middle. And uh, Riskin relates that people would pay like. Uh, I don't remember exactly what the sum was, but she said it was like the sum to get in was about a normal worker's week's worth of wages to get wow. in to see this. But as for, but there seems to be another layer uh, here, and uh, this is uh, this is what Wood has to say. Quote. Volkassan, it must be said, was a man much preoccupied by the state of his body. He was plagued by an illness that had prevented him from eating. He suffered from a fistula of the anus. The mechanician's particular mention of the bowels, anus, and sphincter of the duck, parts audiences may have preferred to imagine for themselves, might be seen as a reflection of his own personal preoccupations. Wow. Huh. Yeah, because, I mean, ultimately, what is the creation of an automaton but an attempt to understand biology enough to replicate its miracles? Mm -hmm. And, of course, even today, we're not there yet. The human body continually presents new puzzles and problems, big and small, annoying and life-threatening, as if to remind us that we really don't have a perfect understanding or a perfect power over our physical bodies. Yeah, and this whole thing about the way automata that tried to resemble living beings, you know, there are all these stories of creatures like this. There are, of course, lots of uh, automaton automata modeled on humans, and then there are automata modeled on animals like ducks and swans and pigs and mm-hmm. wolves and all these things from the time. Um, and that 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 what they did was. In trying to create these early robotic versions of the animals, they showed you what are the hard parts in making an animal work. Right. So you could recreate movement. You know, you could use gears and little levers and stuff like that to make the legs move around and make the wings flap and all that. But you couldn't get it to do certain other things. You couldn't get it to respond to certain kinds of stimuli. You know, you couldn't get like a, a an, uh, an automatic dog to respond to commands or something. Right. And you couldn't, of course get it to digest and poop. And then uh, I want to read a passage from Riskin's uh, essay. Quote, The defecating duck and its companions commanded such attention at such a moment because they dramatized two contradictory claims at once, that living creatures were essentially machines and that living creatures were the antithesis of machines. Its masterful incoherence allowed the duck to instigate a discussion that's continuing nearly three centuries later. Well, that, that in a way, it's the, it's the sign of a great work of art, right? That yeah. That it summons such cognitive dissonance in the, the mind where it's like, 
what I'm seeing is possible and impossible at the same time. Yeah, it's it's both showing like, wow, you can create a mechanical duck this convincing. Uh, and of course, it was, you know, there's a lot that went into it. The duck sat on top of this giant cabinet that had these big rollers and gears underneath that powered its movements. Uh, and so a lot went into this, but it, he did manage to create a duck that would flap its wings and do all this stuff that amazed people. But it was also partially a fraud. And both of these facts at the same time about what it could do and what it couldn't do both seem significant and in indicating in opposite directions about what life was. Was it essentially mechanical or not? And uh, I, another thing I came across in Riskin that I just wanted to read because I thought it was really interesting was that Edgar Allan Poe reacted to oh. the defecating duck. Um, uh, so Edgar Allan Poe ha had thoughts on the duck and on other automata, including Charles Babbage's difference engine, uh, which was an early mechanical calculator. So to read from Riskin, quote, in 1836, Edgar Allan Poe wrote admiringly of Vaucasson's duck and then used it to examine the plausibility of Kempelin's chess player. And that's, of course, the famous mechanical Turk chess player that would uh, – that would it was, it was an automaton that was like a dude in a turban who would play chess against people. Right. Uh, and that also turned out to be a fraud like the duck because uh, it was supposed to be just a machine, but it actually had real chess players inside <laughs> controlling its movements. And so to pick up in Riskin talking about Edgar Allan Poe, uh, the Kimberlin's chess player and of the other automaton then in the news, Babbage's di difference engine. If the duck was ingenious, he wondered, quote, what shall we think of the engine of wood and metal which can compute astronomical and navigation tables? He decided he did believe in the calculating engine because arithmetic, like digestion and flute playing, was, quote, finite and determinate. However, he did not believe in the chess playing automaton automaton because he said chess was an uncertain process. Looking over the history of automata since Vaucasson, Poe tried to define a criterion of possibility. Only determinate processes, he decided, could be mechanized. And so this is kind of weird in multiple ways. Number one, he's He's – Poe is partially right and partially wrong. He thinks the chess player is a fraud, which he was correct about. Mm -hmm. But he thinks the duck is real, that it was actually digesting, which, of course, he's also wrong about. Uh, but he, he correctly, of course, says, well, yeah, you know, you could create an automatic adding machine. It seems to be the distinction he's making is that like a thing can't be automated if it has to respond continuously to stimuli from its environment. Yes. Um, and Riskin actually writes that many thinkers of the 18th and 19th century thought this way about the difference between machines and living things. Living things react to their environment, whereas machines do not. Machines are, are sort of designed top down and they're set going from the beginning and they only execute their pre-programmed behaviors. And this is funny to us because, of course, we're constantly surrounded by machines that continually respond to ongoing inputs. Right. But then, of course, this is, this is the, the, one of the big challenges and continuing challenges in, in robotics is like it's, one, it's, it's been one thing to create uh, an automated machine or a robot that performs, say, a dangerous or, but repetitive uh, manufacturing task like mm -hmm. welding a particular part if you keep it in a dark room away from people. Um, except when it needs to be serviced, obviously. It's another scenario entirely to have that machine work alongside a human. It's another uh, situation entirely then on top of that to s imagine this machine going out to someone's house and working on a car there in right. their environment. Yeah. 
you know, likewise, the idea of a machine like living in your home, learning about your environment and learning about your activities. Uh, yeah, so th- I guess that's a good point. So po- I think Poe is obviously wrong that living things are responsive in a in an indeterminate way and machines aren't. But then again, there are limitations to the way that machines are responsive. Um, and this also actually – it's funny you mention industrial robots because mm-hmm. this also – you mentioned that this got uh, Vaucasson, the, the duck got Vaucasson a job reengineering the looms of France from the king of France. Uh, yeah, he did go on to play an important role in attempts to automate some parts of the French textile industry. And this is an interesting question because coming up with automata like making a duck that poops uh, or or that pretends to poop and making a human that tries to play the flute and all this, th- these experiments in these philosophical toys and curiosities are actually ways of investigating what parts of a process can be automated and what actually can't and has to be done by a human. Right. Uh, so like you can make an automaton that pretends to play chess – but you can't actually make an automaton in the you know 18th century that knows what move to make in the game. Right. And so and so figuring out stuff like this is crucial in automating factories. Like Vaucasson figured out, yeah, okay, you can make a machine that does this part of the weaving process. You don't actually need a human for that, but you still do need a human for this other thing that's impossible to automate. Right. And the same scenario continues to happen in manufacturing. We you know looking at at a given manufacturing process and saying, uh, okay, what are the parts that a machine can do well? Which are the parts that uh, where, uh, where a human needs to be there to excel? Mm-hmm. What are the, the areas uh, where they can potentially work along e- e- uh, beside each other mm-hmm. using what uh, you know, is sometimes referred to as a cobot? Uh, as opposed to a robot. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're still fine-tuning this process as the technology evolves. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like w- one great example of one of these things that the Vaucasson found he could not automate when he was taking over the silk production mm-hmm. was this process of uh, I guess it's getting the silk out of the worms, the initial you know production of the silk thread. Right. Uh, yeah. The, I mean, I, I think it's still kind of this, uh, very similar with a lot of textile related issues. Yeah. Uh, are, are are reportedly more difficult to uh, to automate. Uh, I've heard some more things about um, aspects of. Uh, of like uh, the, the like the cardboard and paper industry. Hmm. Um, I, mean, I mean, every industry is going to have like different areas where machines can definitely excel, uh, where they can be helpful, and where still uh, the role of, of human uh, human labor and human minds uh, are essential to the process. And that's not even getting into the overall um, um, you know uh, supply chain. Uh, issue uh, because the factory, of course, is just one part of uh, of the manufacturing world. You have to get raw materials to the factory right. or semi raw materials to, to the factory. You've got to get the finished product out, uh, 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 you know, along the line and uh, moving towards stores and uh, and uh, the, you know places of sale. And uh, and there's a whole. I mean, there some of that can be automated these days. Uh, we're looking at uh, a very near future where uh, some people hope to see uh, the transport uh, automated, uh, where you have uh, self-driving uh, trucks uh, doing a lot of the uh, the heavy lifting here. But you know, it's uh, we're we're still continuing to figure out how to put that all together. But will they ever fully automate human defecation? Can a robot ever do all of our pooping for us? Um, can robots do pooping for us? Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. That's that's maybe a, that's maybe a long ways off. What about can they create our fatbergs for us? Mm, I'm sure uh, they could. Well, let's just say that the age of actual pooping robots uh, is here, and it has been here, and we're going to discuss uh, more about that when we come back from a break. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about uh, Jacques de Vaucasson and the the digesting duck. And so we've been talking about some of the implications of the early attempts to create automata that would do lifelike processes like digestion and early types of intelligence as as purported to be realized by automata but maybe not actually realized. But now what this duck claimed to do, we do have some machines that that can get into that territory, digesting and pooping, right? Yeah, we've remained fascinated with this and I think a large part of it is that Digestion is uh, is unavoidable. It's an essential part of what we do. As, as we've discussed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know, it's it's an amazing process, and it's an it's an essential aspect of who and what we are. Each of us is essentially a giant earthworm, a tract that runs uh, from our mouth to our anus that breaks down organic matter into a form that allows the removal of crucial nutrients and everything else. You know, arms, legs. 
human culture. It's just an evolved flourish to enable this key function, really. Yeah. We, what it's we just do. some feathers on the digestive tract. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, while we might not want to think of ourselves like this, we may wish to focus on the more refined and less biological aspects of humanity. It is the core of what we are. And if you truly want to engage in the work of a creator or a creatrix deity, then you better be able to create a digestive system. And, uh, you know, it's ultimately a crazy task because digestion does so much. You know, it's, it's a disassembly line of amazingly refined biology. Depending on physical systems, we can't yet equal. Um, you know, just talking about like the fine uh, motor movements that are involved in, uh, in moving um, matter through our intestines, for instance. The peristalsis. Yeah. Uh, like to create that mechanically or, you know, or semi-mechanically is, is, is daunting. Um, and on top of this, nerve impulses are essential to the whole thing. I mean, there's, there's communication going on. Through, uh, throughout your digestive system. Right. And then there's all the, the chemical and uh, microbial aspects of the process. So it's not, it's obviously, it's not just this mechanical or biomechanical process of digestion. Uh, you know, our, our, the, 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 there are chemicals involved. There are, there are, our, our microbial uh, inhabitants are involved in the process. Mm -hmm. And then the end result needs to be energy, you know, for the machine, uh, you know, to, to really digest it has to be able to draw energy out of it, usable energy uh, out of the process. Otherwise, is it really better than the duck? Now, that is a philosophical toy. It makes you ask that question. Is just turning food into poop but not getting any energy out of it necessarily a lesser scientific accomplishment than actually drawing usable energy from it? Well, we'll get back to that for sure. Uh, but but let's start with something uh, else. Let's start with taste, for example. Okay. I mean, taste is a vital aspect of in, of digestion. You yes. Know? I mean, if you stop and think about it for a second, it, it is uh, gustatory perception. And, and granted, the human condition complicates everything, and it certainly complicates taste. But it's essentially there along with smell to help us evaluate what we're considering digesting. Yeah, I mean, a taste and smell are, are, are chemosensitive, uh, are, are chemoreceptor senses. You know, right. they're our chemistry set of the body. Yeah, and so here's an area though where there's there's long been a necessity, uh, you could say, for a machine that can taste food. I mean, kings, queens, and other powerful individuals have long needed a way to determine if food and drink might be poisoned before they consume it. Ah, that's where the, the goblets of certain materials come in, right? Yeah, we talked about this in Stuff to Blow Your Mind, say goblets made from rhino horn that seeming, depending on who you're talking to, seems like they may have um, reacted to certain uh, poisons, mm -hmm. like frothed up in the presence of certain chemicals, and therefore might have worked. But uh, they'd certainly, I think, be partially dissolved by like a strong alkaline. Yeah. And, uh, and then on top of that, there's sort of like magical um, ideas associated with it. And certainly there were anti-poison magics employed throughout history. But one of the best uh, ways to deal with it uh, was always and still to a large extent still is to just have somebody else taste your food for you, taste your wine for you. Somebody expendable. <laughs> yeah. And if they don't die or get uh, get ill, then you know that it's probably okay. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey ate the wings. It yeah. looks like we're good to go. <laughs> and uh, the, one of the crazy things is that, yeah, this is still very much uh, something that is used in the world. In fact, Wait, what? Yeah, there are still food tasters. Oh, so I was reading an interesting Snopes article about this. Uh -huh. And they pointed out that the White House the, apparently still uses food tasters, or at least there's definite proof 
that they used them uh, uh, under uh, President Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. There were several incidents uh, that that definitely uh, stated or supported the fact that he used one both domestically and abroad. Like, for instance, not being able to participate in a meal because the food tester wasn't there, uh, that sort of thing. Um, This, of course, raises uh, a question. Does the current U.S. president use a food taster? (laughs) And I've seen – I was looking around trying to find any confirmation. And there are a lot of articles about you – know, concerned with what sorts of foods the current president eats. Right. But I saw no discussion of whether he uh, employed or the, the Secret Service employed um, a food taster. And how does that change if you're not talking about food prepared on the premises by a chef or whatever? But maybe uh, imagine a president were eating a Big Mac that right. was pu- procured from a McDonald's franchise location. Or brought in in a you know, bucket of KFC. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I couldn't see any sources on that. But it seems like if it were, if it were definitely, say, a Secret Service uh, standard mm-hmm. uh, during the previous presidency – it stands to reason that it may still be um, a practice today, uh, and understandably so. Um, uh, one wonders, though, if, 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 if one can really roll with that much KFC. Uh, I don't know. But at any rate, uh, it is interesting to, you know, to drive home that you know, the, as advanced as the technology may have gotten, um, you know, we're still not to the point where we're going to send the human food tasters home. Uh, when we're put, putting, uh, you know, high-profile lives on the line. Uh, this seems wrong. Like, I mean, I understand the kings and queens of yester centuries uh, saying, okay, here's a, Jeffrey the expendable food taster. It doesn't matter if he dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he can taste it and make sure there's no poison. That that seems wrong today. Should, shouldn't we have a machine that can test for poison without having to su- subject a real human being to the potential dangers of poisoning? Well, we have technologies. Uh, that have that have that have been in in the works. So it was 12 years ago that an electromechanical sommelier uh, was debuted in Japan, and it made headlines for identifying human flesh as bacon, for instance. <laughs> um, and of course, it, it looked kind of like a, you know you would imagine a, a, a cute um, like anime robot uh, uh-huh. looking. But it was the work of NEC System Technologies and uh, my university, and it was designed to deal explicitly with cheese and wine. Uh, but the really cool thing about them is that, you know, is that we had – there are other technologies that can test food, uh, that can see, you know, what, it, what are the contents. But they generally involve destroying the food. Right. Which I guess is kind of what a food taster does. They have to at least take a bite out of that presidential Big Mac yeah. uh, to determine – to what extent it is poison. Well, I mean, think about the way that it would be difficult for you to actually determine the taste of most foods just by, say, licking them. Right. You really need to sort of chew them up and feel them throughout your mouth. Yeah, but the the crazy thing about this is that it was a scanner. It was, uh, as it was described in Nature, it uh, as a uh, as a photonic tasting uh, system. So again, it means that you could. Uh, it was non-invasive, and then you could you could just uh, point it at uh, wine or cheese and and get um, get a sense of what its uh, nutritional data might be or what its chemical composition might be. However, looking around, I couldn't find much info on where this area of research has led. Uh, but at any rate, it it, it has a lot of um, potential to it as as just a, a tool for enforcing food safety. And, uh, and maybe, maybe getting to the point uh, at, later down the line where there'll be some sort of maybe handheld device and you can essentially, you know, Star Trek your uh, Big Mac and see uh, if it has been compromised. 
All right. So if our voices sound a little bit weird now or sound any different, it's because we just had to hop into another studio. But here we are. We're still going. Uh, So we just talked about this idea of like photonic tasting of foods. Obviously, that kind of tasting is a little bit different than the idea of tasting for poison, which we were talking about a minute ago. But it's also very different from the overall digestive process, right? Right. And as we get into digestion, I, I want to discuss uh, something that is you know, outside the strict domain of, of just science and gets more into uh, this place where art meets science. And it's the, the work of a Belgian artist by the name of uh, Wim Delvoy, who created a series of cloaca machines over the years. <laughs> and uh, each of these is a kind of mechanical and chemical disassembly machine for food. So he consulted gastrointestinal experts as well as plumbers uh, and rolled out the first version, which is like Cloaca 1, in 2000. And he's kept going with these. Uh, uh-huh. like the most current version, there have been multiple iterations of Cloaca, but the most current version is active right now in the Royal Museums of Fine Arts uh, of Belgium. And you can you even have a Nest Cam up. So you can you can go online if you look up Vim Delvo. That's W I M D E L V O Y E. Look up his website. There's all of his works on there. He has a pretty good website, and uh, and, th- and there's a link to this live video, and you can watch this machine uh, slowly uh, turning food into poop, slowly digesting food. Uh, if, if you didn't know what you were looking at, you would just assume that it's just some random piece of machinery, perhaps in a factory somewhere. There's nothing particularly dynamic or nightmaric about it, Mm -hmm. Uh, but yet it is a a mechanical digestion system. So part of his whole uh, artistic vision here is that this machine, the cloaca machine, is essentially useless. All it does is turn food into poop without generating anything worthwhile out of the process. And his argument here is that thus too is the modern world, (laughs) all-consuming, all pooping and producing nothing of real value in the process, <laughs> uh, because again, this is art. Uh, but he's, but it, but it's uh, it's it's more than just um, uh, you know what what he's created here does have a lot in common with the digesting uh, the defecating duck. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, there except he's he's actually using a a chemical process. There's a, a chemical and mechanical process taking place in cloaca. Um, that is not there uh, with the duck. But he has also created something that is something of a philosophical toy, right? Yeah. That we're supposed to look at it, and it makes us think about uh, uh, about uh, the traditions he's playing with here and the, uh, the statement he's making about modern society. But makes us think in a slightly different way because here – The process of at least – not the whole process of digestion, but at least the process of turning fresh food into uh, fecal matter essentially Mm -hmm. is no longer one of these like great mysteries that can't be accessed by the mechanists, right? Right. Now this one – we've got this part sort of figured out though we still – there still may be some things about digestion we don't fully have figured out. Oh, yeah. And I'm not – I don't mean to imply that it's a perfect facsimile of human digestion because there's a lot going on. But he is – he has created a reasonable biomechanical facsimile of the of the process. And when you look at pictures of it, it looks like an assembly line. It looks uh. like this uh, – and depending on the lighting, some of the images are wonderful because it looks, it looks like something out of the Matrix, you know, um, uh, with these like uh, – these kind of containers hanging from this, uh, this platform. Mm-hmm. And, and there's like a, even a, a small conveyor belt that I think is used at the very end. Uh, in some uh, instances, the poop has been sold. Uh, at the very end of it, like this is the thing you can purchase as your souvenir of cloaca. Uh-huh. Uh huh. 
Um, Does it come in a container? Or they just put it in your hand. I think it's in a container. Yeah, <laughs> like um, uh, and uh, you know, and and he has all like cool logos in line. Like there's the cloaca logo that has kind of the. I, it's not quite the Michelin man. No, it's uh, Mr. Clean, I guess. Oh, okay. But he's like a genie with intestines. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> um, but he, and this isn't the only time that he's used um, um, technology uh, in uh, uh, in his work. Uh, uh-huh. For instance, he also produced a project titled uh, uh, Chapelle Mudam, which uh, makes use of X-ray technology. So he, he uh, had X-rays taken of individuals engaged in various uh, sex acts. Uh, so that the x-rays could then be transformed into stained glass cathedral windows. Okay. So uh, it, that's this, I think this illustrates all what, one of the things I love about Vim Delvo is that he, he seems like a character from a William Gibson novel. Yeah. And I really love that about him. Sort of a cyberpunk art rascal. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, Cloaca is very much in the spirit of the pooping da- duck. But uh, the next part of the equation, obviously, like where do we go from here, would be to consider – the creation of machines that don't just turn food into poop, uh, but they can potentially acquire uh, food on their own and then maybe even obtain energy from its meal because that's ultimately – that's something cloaca is not doing. The cloaca is not going out and grazing in the field. Right. It is a machine that is fed uh, and then produces poop at the other end. Uh, it is not catching food on its own, and it is not, uh, uh, you know, creating a, a, a energy out of what it is doing. It is not thriving on its meal, and that brings us to the Echobot and its various kin. So, roboticists at Bristol Robotics Laboratory have spent a great deal of time over the years developing robot predators that hunt down and eat living organisms or could potentially hunt down and eat uh, uh, living organisms. This sounds like a good project. <laughs> well, no, it is. It is. And then break all of this down into energy. Yeah, I, I know it makes people think of various like Terminator scenarios. but we're, we're not talking about large predators that would say hunt down like adult mammals or right, something. Right, like they're not going after deer. But um, for instance, they had an earlier project uh, – uh, a slug bot pro- project where the thing would be that it would it would it would eat garden slugs and break them down for energy. Huh. And they've since mo- they moved on to Echobot two that would uh, eat flies. They also explored the possibilities of plankton eating robot uh, robots that would be you know uh, you know out in uh, the ocean. Uh, and then uh, Echobot three. This was the world's first robot to exhibit true uh, self sustainability. It boasted onboard fluid circulation. And this robot was capable of operating within an enclosed environment for seven days by collecting its food and water from, uh, from like an arena environment, uh, which consisted of like liquid food and different dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the actual digesting is done by a series of microbial, microbial fuel cells or MFCs. Hmm. Uh, so bacteria consumes food and produces hydrogen atoms as a byproduct. The hydrogen goes into a fuel cell, which generates electricity to power the robot plus, uh, you know, pure water, which the, the robot then uh, uh, essentially kind of drinks to keep itself from being dehydrated, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. Uh, the remaining biomass goes through the entire cycle once more before being eliminated. And then uh, in years since, they've moved on to Echobot 4. That's the, the most current version of it, which is all about pairing the, bio, the, the power requirements of various uh, electronic applications, robotic or non-robotic, with the power generated by the MFC stacks. And uh, this is a, there, there are a lot of cool projects that the, the Bristol Robotics Laboratory is involved in, um, a lot of them involving bioenergy. Uh, for instance, they have one that is use, using urine to power up a mobile phone via this uh, microbial uh, fuel cell. 
Uh, it demonstrates uh, for the first time the charging of a commercially available mobile phone using uh, microbial fuel cells uh, fed with real human urine. So, I mean, like in, in this, you know, we're kind of going beyond merely this uh, absurd dream of wanting to create machines that do uh, what humans do or poo what humans poo, mm -hmm. uh, as the case may be. But, uh, but getting into a situation where it's like, okay, if we, can, if we can create something like digestion, like true digestion in a machine, like what are the various applications there? Like if you have a machine that essentially eats and produces uh, energy for your cell phone, then that's that's wonderful. That's like that's a, a potential real-world application. Likewise, the idea of a, some sort of marine drone that uh, doesn't have to be recharged; it just simply eats plankton uh, as if it were a, a you know filter-feeding whale or fish. Mm -hmm. And they're working on other products too: robot, robots that decompose, artificial gills for robots, uh, and various applications uh, for water cleanup and wastewater management using these MFCs. Uh, so uh, I, th their website is definitely worth checking out if you go to uh, bristolroboticslab.com. Um, it'll give you a, a pretty good uh, insight into like where we are and where we seem to be going with the possibility for digesting robots. So robots that do some something that is uh, very similar to digestion in humans. Well, it's really interesting to see yet again how um, a, a project – I mean this happens throughout the history of technology, a project that began – as a kind of, uh, either, you could say generously an intellectual exercise, you could say ungenerously just sort of like a pointless little display. Mm -hmm. um, either way, it has progressed into something that you could imagine being actually useful. Like I imagine, oh, I don't know, you know, self-powering sort of robots that that forage throughout the environment, say cleaning up litter or waste or detoxifying the environment and uh, and sustaining themselves through, you know, the normal kinds of biomatter that would be eaten by animals anyway. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I guess the thing is, with any technology, there are cascading effects. There, there, uh, there are different uh, applications that spin off from the the, the core uh, investigation. I mean, we see that uh, one of the most notable examples is the the space program. Mm -hmm. and it's often touted that, yeah, you even if you're not convinced about the necessity for human space travel and exploration of our our solar system. Um, which I, I want to stress that I think I, I, I do think those are important uh, exercises for uh, for our species. But even if you're not totally on board with those, you, there are all these other technologies that spin out of that conquest. Right. And uh, and many of those have very important real world uh, everyday applications that you can't always predict. Right. And the unpredictable nature, I think, is sort of the key. It's like, well, ju just because you can't think of a way that it's going to pay off doesn't mean it's not going to pay off. Right. Yeah. And just and it, this kind of comes down to the basic uh, uh, one of the basic facts about scientific uh, investigation in general is that, you know, there are all sorts of uh, studies out there that can be criticized with the whole shrimp on a treadmill uh, criticism and saying what mm -hmm. you know this is ridiculous. Why, why are you testing for this? Why are you why are you why are you putting uh, tax dollars into this sort of research uh, just to find out uh, you know um, you know how fast a shrimp runs or, uh, or whatever the the criteria happens to be? I mean, I think the time to criticize a study is if there's something wrong with its methodology. Right. I mean, either if it's like unethical or something, or if you have reason to doubt that its results are sound. Right. If you don't have those issues, then I don't know. I, I kind of hesitate uh, for, 
to to attack studies even that seem frivolous in one way or another uh, because you don't exactly know how that knowledge might be applied. It, the, there might be things that the researchers have in mind that you don't realize. Right. And if nothing else, they're contributing to our, our overall knowledge of the natural world mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and pushing that, uh, that boundary, pushing that threshold. And we often don't know what lies beyond that threshold, yeah. what the next uh, level of exploration or discovery will be. You don't know what information might be useful to somebody in the future when facing a problem that we haven't even encountered yet. Exactly. All right. So does that do it for machines that poop? I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we left some things out. Uh, you know, generally, like in, in terms of just looking at met- methods and technologies for breaking down organic matter, uh, you know, there are some other projects out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, especially uh, the EchoBot program, is probably one of the more notable ones, and also one of the more glamorous because you have, you know, anytime you have discussion of a robot eating garden slugs, uh, obviously that's gonna that's gonna catch everyone's attention. That's gonna garner some headlines. Uh, but I think this provides like sort of a nice overall, especially be- to begin with, something that is uh, an invention that is not, or a desire for an invention that is not born out of necessity, mm-hmm. and exploring how it can come back around to something that that does. Uh, satisfy some necessities or or attempts to satisfy some necessities in our world. Totally. This has been more interesting and more relevant to the history of technology than I would have imagined. Yeah. Uh, but I do, I do uh, implore everyone, the next time you're watching a robot movie, uh, ask yourself, does this robot poop? Um, <laughs> well, actually, you know what? This does come up because I think it is still a part of our intuition that something about the chemical digestion process and the ability to sustain oneself on organic food matter is integral to our idea of what's alive. There's even a scene um, – do you remember the scene in the movie AI where mm-hmm. there is the robot child that's having trouble bonding with its family? And essentially the, the, the android wants – he wishes he were a real boy and he uh, – there's one scene where I think what he does is he tries to eat food. Uh-huh. Like he puts food into his mouth and chews it up and tries to swallow it, which of course, you know, he's not good for him because he's a robot. But I think the implication is he sees that as like an essentially truly organic and human activity that he can't do. And if he could do, maybe that would make him a real boy. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is something that was explored a bit on the, um, uh, the, the, the rather uh, excellent uh, British uh, series Humans. Mm-hmm. Which uh, basically takes a uh, you know an, an android uh, ubiquitous android technology scenario and um, and uh, explores some interesting themes there uh, while also commenting on various uh, you know current events and uh, and current problems and uh, you know such as um, uh, the refugee crisis uh, mm-hmm. and so forth and also just our general tendency to uh, focus on othering and treat uh, people horribly for. Uh, various reasons that you know pertain to their uh, their race, their ethnicity, their gender, uh, their sex, their sexual preferences, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but in that series, uh, the uh, so at least some of the robots, perhaps all of them, have the ability to to eat human food, uh, and it goes into like a balloon-like receptacle mm-hmm. uh, in their throat and upper chest, which then they could like they empty manually later, like they take it back out of their throat and empty it into a you know, a sink or something. So the eating is is merely like for appearances. It's like an aesthetic thing. Yeah, and I think and there are some cases where the robots are using it 
deceptively. Mm. But I think in general, it's there because there is a there was a realization that humans want a human experience out of the machine that they've created in their own likeness, and a big part of that is being able to like share a meal. You want to be able to go out yeah. to lunch with a friend, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I, anyone interested in a good robot viewing, I recommend that show. I think three seasons have come out, and, uh, you know, they get into you know, issues regarding technological singularity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fun series, and, and more to the point, it, it does make you think. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, that's it for Pooping Ducks then, <laughs> and uh, we'll uh, hope to join you next time. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you can check out all the other episodes of Invention at inventionpod.com. And we're always open up. We're always open to uh, suggestions for the future. Uh, key in, uh, inventions you would like us to cover. Uh, new looks at past invention episodes we've uh, we've covered. Uh, let us know. Uh, we've received some wonderful feedback from folks already. We've been adding things to the list, and we hope to do uh, c- cover some of those in the future. Definitely. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison, and our guest producer today, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, Every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.